Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from both academia and industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. Hello, Kevin. Thank you so much uh, for joining us on the podcast. Such an honor to have you. Hi, Mama. Thank you so much for having me today. Thank you, Kevin. So I'd like to ask you first, how you'd like to define yourself or the audience who may be first time listening to you? Oh, so my name is Kevin Chen. Um, I'm now a new faculty here in MIT, and our lab does research on microscale robots and soft robots, and specifically we merge the two areas of robotics. Um, personally, I used to be a graduate student and PhD and postdoc at Harvard. And before that, I was an undergraduate student at Cornell studying physics. So I was pretty much studying flapping, been studying flapping flight, um, the theory of flapping flight, and then applying the theory to build a small-scale robots for the past 10 years or so. Mm-hmm. Yes, great. So we'll go deeper for that. But first, to ask every guest about their childhood, how was your childhood post? Do you have any memories about your childhood related to science or technology? Any memories? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so when I was small, I was born in China. So, um, and, uh, you know, I was in a big city, but my uh, parents, um, especially in the summer, they uh, took me to catch uh, small insects. Uh, so it was uh, at a very early age, I had a fascination with watching how insect fly, right, uh, sort of having small uh, uh, dragonflies in, in my home, observing oh, how they land on things, how they catch uh, small flying insects. That was a very fun time. So I guess since I was very small, um, I always had this um, sort of um, interest in understanding how, uh, how biological systems at a very small scale work. And, and, and that really drives me to taking more courses in college uh, in physics and trying to understand the underlying principles. Wow, that's uh, correlated exactly what you're doing in your PhD. But I'm curious to ask you after your PhD and the childhood, of course it was very contributing what you're already doing now. What kind of something, when you sort of something I want to understand, is it really hard to understand? What kind of thing, thing even still now, you don't have answer for that? when you look for inspiration or what we see in nature for the insect, for example. What's something specifically that's really hard for you to understand? Sure, yeah, I think that's a very good question. When I look for inspiration in nature, right? For example, I, I look at how a bee flies or how a dragonfly perch. That's something that's very impressive. That's something that I want to build. But of course, like you have said, there's so many uh, very hard questions to answer mm-hmm. before I can replicate those. Uh, into a physical system. And to me, the hardest part of research is not so much with coming up with new ideas, but it's always to find the correct question. So my research path is always, oh, I saw something cool, I want to build that, I want to understand that. Let's think about what are the most important questions, right? And even when you simplify to uh, building physical robot, usually it starts with, well, I tried this and it doesn't work. And then the most important thing is, again, finding out what is the problem. So, so uh, it, to me, it's always looking for 
interesting phenomena and then identifying the most interesting and important problem and thinking about all the possible solutions that can try to tackle that problems. But to me, in terms of research, it's really finding the root problem that, that's very important. Mm -hmm. That's a very important point. I think you, you mentioned about that. We don't have to pick everything in nature and to be engineered for solution. Uh, that's, I think, a very important point. But I'm curious to ask you in design, since you have this kind of influence to uh, understand the physics and what's happening, mm -hmm. and solution you're trying to find for real problem. Mm -hmm. How you approach this kind of design? For example, we have a series on embodied intelligence, and one of the things I think is very interesting um, had been said, you can't evolve everything that reduces the fitnesses. So, for example, that's why humans don't have fizzlers, why the insect is designed in certain shape, why they don't have this kind of yeah number of legs or this kind of shape. Or So when you look to the solution, you try to uh, solve the problem you have. What's the approach you uh, you take? Or when you look for environment you don't know anything about, if you can tell us about the approach here, sure. how do you take yeah. Sure. So, you know, I work in sort of bio-inspired robotics, and mm. I, I think a, mis a common misconception in this field is, well, we just copy what biology looks like. Mm. For example, if an insect has six legs, then we try to put six legs in our robot. If we see an insect has two wings, then we put two wings in our robot. If we observe how an insect flaps its wings, we try to make sure our robot flaps its wings. I don't think that's the correct way to approach the problem. I think the correct way to approach to approach a problem is saying, look, the insect can perform a certain functions that existing state of art robot cannot do. And let me try to replicate that function. And if I want to replicate that function, well, let me think about the underlying physics. What are the physical principles that the insect use that allow the insect to do that kind of function? And let's think about the, 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 the robotic tools that we can use to enable that physical phenomenon and utilize that physical phenomenon to enable the function, right? So more concretely, I always tell people that robotics and biology each have their own advantages and challenges. For insects, the challenge is always that, um, you know, they are multimodal. They use one set of appendages to do multiple things. They walk, they feed, they grab onto things and they do a lot of things with it, right? And that is, of course, extremely challenging for robotic systems. You, you don't have actuators that are as good as insect muscles at a small scale, but you have a wider range of materials to choose from. You have high stiffness carbon fiber, you have uh, polyamide uh, materials that, that can survive millions of life cycles, right? So identify the interesting functions Think about the deep underlying physical phenomena and then use the robotics tool to uh, leverage those physical phenomena such that you can implement the physical function, not so much about building the identical robot or building a robot that looks like the insect. Mm -hmm. so, 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 yeah. so, so, so does that have um, sort of a, um, so is that a good answer to your question? Yeah. So maybe it's Judy can ask a question. If you, what do you say? How I can approach maybe new design, exotic design, never exist in nature or what is the most important uh, maybe part I have to consider? What I have to think about maybe design that would be 
we don't speak about optimum design. Of course, we speak about adaptable design to different environments, depending on what you try to design. But if I'm trying to target a design beyond what we have in nature, what are the most important step I have to take in consideration that I can come up to design never existed before? And, and yeah, because nature is not always optimum. Yeah. Sure. So for example, right, uh, I work on flapping wing flight. I can tell you one direction that we are working on. Uh, what we realize is that, for example, insects can turn really quickly. And, and that's something we want to emulate. Uh, insect can make a somersault in you know, 0.01 seconds, much, much faster than any drones that we make, right? So the first thing we want to do is to be able to understand how this insect generate that flight torque. And we reason about the physics, we do a lot of simulation, we realize that it, it is passive wing fish and it is able to control that wing fish and generate a large torque. Now coming back to the design side, the question that I want to ask is, well, Given the robotic tools, are we limited to build a two-wing robot? Can we build a four-wing robot like Dragonfly? But even better, can we make an eight-wing robot? Right? I mean, we have so much freedom in choosing whatever the form of that robot looks like, given our robotic technology. So, you know, one thing that you're seeing is, you know, our current robot that has an eight-wing. It, it doesn't look so much bio-inspired, and we actually we are making even more wing systems. The idea again is to emulate the underlying principle using the utilize the physical phenomena to do quick turning or quick perching rather than saying, well, a dragonfly has four wings, let me have four wings. So so that's one design path we're going to take. Yeah, yeah. So when it looked to what could be something uh, missing in so that we can achieve maybe something, of course it's hard to replicate what I have in nature exactly. Mm -hmm. But do you think it's lacking for materials? or a model to understand this physics, what's happening exactly? What is maybe, do you think, lacking uh, so that we can achieve something similar to what we have in nature? Sure, I, 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 no, in my view, because we are working on a physical robotic platform, we constantly have to think about what are the main challenges. Let me say that there are uh, main challenges in almost every single area. In material science, for example, um, we just don't have Microscale actuators that are as good as what what the insect actuator can do. So yeah, so one thing is the actuator, and the other thing is the power sources. The muscles are great in the sense that their their power source is local, right? <laughs> their power source is is yeah. from the chemicals, and they are just stored immediately next to the muscle, right? Um, that's another very difficult thing. So when you think about actuation at a small scale. Uh, motors are too big for those. I think if you look at the power uh, power density scaling of motors, uh, essentially beyond or for sizes that are uh, or the, for weight that are lower than 25 grams, it's very difficult to build EM motors anymore. So you are forced to think about novel sources of actuation. Uh, and then for battery, right? For the smallest battery you can find. Uh, that you can buy is about 0.3 grams, yet our robot only weighs about 0.5 grams. So it's very difficult to think about power sources too. So, you know, in material science, battery and actuation is difficult. And it's also difficult in terms of understanding the physics. If you look at a bee that flies in nature, it flaps its wings at around 200 hertz to 500 hertz. Very difficult to even observe, right? You have to use a high-speed camera, you have to, uh, 
not, not only to mention that it's hard to measure the lift and drag forces because they are so small, and also measuring the underlying flow field. So all of those things are extremely difficult to understand. So building the robot is difficult. Uh, understanding the physics is difficult. And of course, as you have mentioned, control is difficult. Again, because the time scale is so fast, and when, when the flapping system flight oscillates a lot, you need a sensor that can sense very accurately and, and also very fast, but also be able to reject the noises. So really, I think in the scale of making things small, you have challenges from all different directions. Yeah. So maybe that we can ask about what could be think what you can imagine could be the starting point so that we can uh, yeah, approach this kind of advancement. What do you think may be something we have to more give much attention so that we can advance while we have, so that we can have all these features you mentioned? Right, so I personally would really like to collaborate with uh, people who work in material science. I think that's something that robotics don't have a, a lot of expertise in, but can really uh, fundamentally change the landscape of microrobotics. For example, you know, I want to work with material scientists and coming up with new type of soft elastomers that can dramatically improve the performance of small-scale actuators. Um, to me, once you have good actuators, um, then you can do a lot of interesting things. Otherwise, your robot won't move much, right? And the other thing is, again, collaborate with, uh, collaborate with material scientists to come up with new batteries, smaller batteries, solar panels dedicated for uh, small-scale systems. Now, we, 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 we do want to mention that the fact that you know, the cell phone industry has been so successful in, over the past 10, 20 years has really helped us to grow our field as well. We can look for MEMS technology using those fabrication techniques and sensors from those areas, borrow them to solve our own problems. But, but in terms of the main challenges, you know, one is actuation, the other is power. I think that's something that we want to focus on. And if we can have major breakthrough in those areas, I think the entire you know field of microrobotics can be pushed forward quite dramatically. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So if we consider what could be um, when we have the material science lab, do you think the material should be have the actuation and the sensing embedded in the same material? Because we speak mm -hmm. about the freedom we have and the material we have already. What kind of material do you think about when it comes to like wish list of example? It had the actuation and sensing at the same time. So, you know, I, I can tell you what we want from the material. We want the material to be power dense. We want it to have high bandwidth, meaning that we can operate at hundreds of hertz. So the bandwidth has to be high. And we want the material to be robust, right? And we want the material to be efficient. And when you look at those specs, they really just look like insect muscles. <laughs> um, so, so those are the important uh, sort of performance characteristic we are trying to strike in terms of thinking about actuation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when it looks to design, you have uh, the robotry, just so the kind of transition from the water to air, different medium here. Mm -hmm. How do you manage to do that efficiently if you have different mediums? If you can tell more about that, yeah. Right, so that project, we, we really, again, think about the underlying physics. Right. The first thing we observe is that well, insects can do it. There are small diving beetles that can fly and land on the water surface, dive into water, come back. And we thought, you know, if we can build a small robotic system that can does that, can also do functions that existing uh, robotic system cannot do. Right. 
That's a very interesting thing. Now, then we start to think about, okay, I want to implement the same functions. What main challenges do we have? And as it turns out, at this very small scale, um, the challenges is that the water surface tension is very, very strong. In fact, we, we uh, quantify that to break the water uh, surface, you need to generate a force that's 10 times larger than the weight of the robot. Now, an insect can do it. An insect is very powerful. Its muscle is great. So it basically just pushes through the water surface and dives into water. Now, our robot cannot do it. We don't have that good of an attribute. So that requires you to think about what other strategies the small robot can do that uh, insect cannot do. Well, what we can do is we can leverage physics, right? So what we did is we used uh, electrolyzing and electrolysis. And those are physical phenomena that people know that uh, can help us to modify the surface tension properties of water. So the idea to get into water is you land on water, you send a high voltage to the water surface that modify the local contact angle, reduces the surface tension, allow your robot to think. So that is, again, using high voltages to, modul to modulate water surface tension. And then you want to come back from underwater to water, you again need to overcome this huge force, right? Again, inside can do it because they're super strong. Our robot cannot because actually it isn't that good. So what we can do? Well, we can use electrolysis. Again, a chemical reaction that allows us to convert, use electricity to convert water into gases, into a mixture of hydrogen and oxygen. You capture those, use the buoyancy to float on the water surface, keep yourself uh, stable, and then you ignite the mixture of hydrogen and oxygen, such that you use an impulsive force, again, a chemical reaction, very powerful one, to impulsively jump off the water surface. So that is, I think, a very good example of what I call bio-inspired bio engineering. That is to emulate insect functions, but not limiting yourself to emulate how insects try to do it. You can use engineering tools, in this case, uh, chemistry and physics, that allow us to uh, achieve a similar function. So what could be limitation you still have, or maybe trade-off when it comes to design? Do you have any trade-offs, unavoidable trade-offs when it comes to your system? You, you sure. With the limitation as well? Sure, of course. You know, again, we can achieve that, but there's, of course, uh, a lot of uh, trade-offs. For example, the efficiency of what we are trying to do in terms of trying to get a robot into water and out of water is much, much lower than what the insect, than what the insect can do. Uh, these, we have to spend about two joules of energy to, 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 to do one transition. Whereas uh, for the insect, they almost spend no effort in doing that. Um, so that's one, uh, one big trade-off. And the other thing is um, we sometimes talk about lifetime. You know, insects can fly. They can do a lot of things. Their muscles are extremely robust. And um, when I was a graduate student at Harvard, we work on piezoelectric actuators. Again, they behave like insect muscles, but the trade-off for that is one, they require very high skill for assembly. Making them are extremely difficult. It takes a graduate student multiple years to get trained to build those. But two, they are very fragile. They're unlike the insect muscles. They break very easily. So that is one example of the material property limiting the performance of the engineering system. But when you look at an insect, it's extremely good. So um, there are always a lot of trade-offs we make, and there's, I think, uh, frankly, a, a big performance gap between our robotic system and insects. Mm -hmm. Interesting. 
I guess it's key about the sensing and redundancy concept because this is something in robotics we have to also say there's redundancy. But when it comes to sensing using, when we convert to the answer, we, we relay in feedback, we have this kind of maybe argument to some extent, we relay the feedback or they are predicting. For example, the fly, they, we have the sensing or we can have a flex, for example. That's something, I don't know if you can elaborate more about the first part about the sensing. Is it blending on feedback or predictable? And it's dated. I don't know how how you think about that. Sure. I mean, speaking of uh, sensing, let me put it this way. I think with the suite of sensors that are available today, I think you know, let's talk about large scale robot first. People can do very accurate sensing and use those sensing use those sensing data to do control, very accurately. Right? You have onboard cameras, gyros, and everything for. Um, Figuring out where you are, where are the obstacles? How do I compute the path to bypass the obstacle? Um, in, in my view, I think you know if you think about the sensing techniques that's used by a quadrotor, I think it's much more complex and accurate than what a, 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 a small insect can do, like a fruit fly. Yet fruit flies are extremely robust; they can fly through the most challenging environment. So again, I think that's a um, that's a holistic problem you have to consider. Um, the difficulty about achieving sensing in micro-scale robot mm -hmm. is one, can you shrink sensors to a much smaller scale while still achieve reasonable sensing data, sensing accuracy. But two, in my view, is the sensing efficiency. Um, I think a, a very interesting field of uh, research in our uh, area is thinking about how do I sense my surroundings without using so much energy, right? If I if I have infinite source of power and infinite number of sensors, of course I can get super um, accurate values. I think what when people try to look at insects, insects are super efficient. They sense they don't you know sense their environment very very fast. They only sense when necessary, and they only sense when they need to, when they collide with an obstacle, then they start sensing really quick. After they make their, uh, after they sort of recover from that collision, then their sensing rate goes down, right? So how do you sense efficiently? Uh, I think it's a much more interesting problem uh, uh, for our field uh, in comparison to what people can already do very well in large scale flying robot, which is to sense accurately. Mm -hmm. What do you mean about efficiently? Do you mean the way we distribute the sensing, the way we have this topology representation for the sensor and the on the robot? What right. So how like, yeah, how many sensors do we need to fly? How, what what is the sensing frequency we need? Right. How what is the cost of compute per uh, sort of per action? All of those things. If you uh, look at this problem from an energetic perspective, uh, uh, perspective insects are using way less energy to sense and uh, control compared to what we do here. And I think this odd, a, a, a good idea about how to sense and control efficiently, it's very difficult to emulate the same flight capability within a very tiny robotic platform. Yeah, yeah. That's a good point. Yeah, maybe go into redundancy concept. If there's something damaging the design, mm -hmm. how do you, when you look to the insect, how would happen if you can explain more about the redundancy? I think you can adapt it to damages happening to the structure. And then we come to robots. How you can design redundant? Sure. Yeah. yeah, I think, again, 
resilience is something that's uh, super important when you um, so when you look at a bee in nature for example it has to pollinate so as you fly near flowers and people who study bees uh, says that on average um, a bee's wing collide with an obstacle once a second in their lifetime so they collide uh, a lot of times so there so how does a bee make sure that one is it can still fly well but two how does it try to deal with the tear and wear of their wings, right? So one thing is, if you look at the bee structure, the, 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 the bee structure of their wings, there are um, sort of uh, small hinges that can buckle, which basically means if my wings hit a obstacle very hard, then my wings can buckle. That absorbs some energy and prevents my wing from breaking. So that's one thing that they can do. But also when I hit, when my wing hits the obstacle, my muscle also feels a lot of the impact. But because my muscle is soft, I can also absorb that impact from there. So a lot of the, uh, uh, if you look at insects, they are very robust because they have to live in very complex environment and they have to adapt to those collisions and disturbances and all those. That's something that uh, we are lacking in robotic systems. Again, I used to be working with vision powered microscopes. And while the challenge in those type of robot is collision, um, of course, there are other areas of research that are extremely uh, important. For example, we try to use those kind of robots to, interesting, uh, uh, to enable interesting functions, such as transition from air to water and water back into air. But one thing that we try to do in those type of experiments is we try to uh, sort of super glue our robot onto a tiny string so it does not fly into a wall or crash onto the uh, or, or, or crash into the ceilings or floors right and 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 the idea is that we don't want it to collect these things because we know that if it does it may break a wing and even worse it may break an actual wing and that's something we, we don't want to do but again if you look into the longer term goal of putting a swarm of micro scale robot into a realistic environment to do tasks such as search and rescue or, or, or pollination, then they have to rigorously interact with their environment. So, so that's actually one of the uh, research area we are trying to do to explore right now, which is enable resilience in the small scale robot. That involves redesigning the robot wings to make sure that they can survive collisions, redesigning or coming up with a new class of soft actuators to make sure they are resilient against collisions. And you know, you, you probably seen our most recent paper, right? You can fly the robot with, you know, while hitting the robot or you know, crashing the robot onto a floor, and they can all survive. So that's again trying to replicate insect functions, but think about what engineering tools we have such that we can achieve that function. Mm -hmm. Great, that's fantastic. We can just ask you about simulation because I think students tell us about all the time about how we can design a high fidelity simulation. And when it comes to materials, sometimes that question about how we can design nonlinear, simulate nonlinear materials. Some tools could do that, but we still, yeah, have a lot of maybe points to be covered, simulation to reality gap, etc. If you can tell us most about when it comes to designing a robot before going to, because it requires a lot of hard work and sometimes it's failing. How does your simulation tool helping you and what percentage of accuracy do you have? And what do you think maybe you can improve more in that area? I, I think that's a great question. So in terms of the importance of simulation, um, I think 
that I was a graduate student, my first two years was completed without doing any physical experiment, just concentrating on simulation. Mm-hmm. And simulation, I think, is always very important prior to you build your physical robot and, and conduct flight tests, for example. And what I want to mention is that we don't want to write a simulation that's 99% accurate, meaning that it looks exactly identical with your physical system. I think what a simulation is important for is that the simulation can inform you about important trends or can tell you about the underlying physics so that you can improve your robot design. For example, I spend a lot of time writing computational fluid dynamic simulations to understand the flapping wing physics. That's looking at how the robot flaps wings, generating flow structures. How does that relate to the lift and drag forces? Even the best simulation will have a large margin of error. By that, I mean 20 to 30% uh, uh, error compared to, to experiment because we can't model what material you use. We can't model the small changes of shape of the wing, et cetera. But what it can tell you is important physical phenomena. For example, we realize that if you increase the wing hinge stiffness, how does that impact the leading edge vortex growth and shedding? And how does that influence the lift and drag generation forces? And then your computational tools can be used to help you identify important physical trends and point you to ways of physical optimization. So that's one thing you can do. The other thing, another example is prior to doing somersault experiments, right? It's always important to conduct numerical simulations to see what kind of input forces and torques you need such that you're able to generate or enable a somersault in simulation. And that, for example, predict that, well, I need a lift to weight ratio of two to one. And that is a, 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 a design criteria you have to achieve before you try any um, sort of somersault experiment. So I think the simulation informs what you can do with, with the experiment, tell you the physical trend, help you to improve the design of the robot, but they shouldn't be viewed as, oh, I need to have something that's 99% similar to my physical system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really insightful as well. Yeah. But going back to the design again, because when we look to an intro, we have this kind of, yeah, rigid, soft, there's a combination. What we have in soft world is multi-material. And still, there's a lot of question about how we can design the multi-material or how we can combine them or the challenges of it. For you, how do you see the multi-material approach in design, your design? Right. So, so yeah. So again, we 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 think about everything from the perspective of functions, right? What mm-hmm. what material suits the best function? So you know, to me, I have a range of materials that I can choose from, from rigid to soft. And for each component, I, I try to identify what is the desired uh, properties and what kind of material fits that property, right? For example, I you know we we don't want to limit ourselves to building purely rigid or purely soft robot. We choose a component to accomplish that function. For example, you know, think about a, the flying robot, for example, the robot here that I have in my hand. Okay. Uh, so this is a dragonfly-like robot. It has both rigid and soft components. When you think about the rigid component, think about the airframe. That's like the exoskeleton of the robot. We want that to be rigid and lightweight, and therefore carbon fiber is the best uh, choice. When you think about the flight muscle, we mentioned that uh, we believe that having resilience is very important. Therefore, we, we choose soft actuators, uh, soft elastomers that is very robust against collisions. So we always try to strike for hybrid soft rigid systems. Now, of course, 
combining both soft and rigid system will create new challenges. And you know, in our field, one of the biggest challenges, how do we interface them together? The interface between the rigid material and soft material is usually very weak. And that you know, creates a lot of problems for us. And we are still experiencing problems at this point, trying to reason about uh, sort of how to make those connections or how to incorporate you know, soft material and rigid materials uh, into a robotic system and make them work together. So I guess it's true. If there's anything uh, for your work, perhaps this kind of perception that will work in a certain way, but in the experiment work, it was maybe counterintuitive. We didn't expect this result. We wouldn't really expect it to be sphere or simulation. Something absolutely counterintuitive or surprising. Do you have any something um, in ahead of you like that with your research? So, so oh, you like, mean something that we didn't expect from the theory? Yeah, but, uh, not expected or it was counterintuitive to what you thought. That's something I didn't expect that. So this is really surprising. Results. Sure. No, I, I, I wouldn't say that. Uh, uh, so, for example, the, the whole concept of surface tension was totally overlooked when I was uh, trying to do things. I, you know, I, I never thought surface tension is a big thing because in, in daily life, I don't feel about surface tension. I'm very big <laughs> compared to insects. And, and, and also, you know, uh, when I do you know, physics and things, I, I really don't I ignore the interfacial phenomena until we do experiments. Um, so when I was trying to do hybrid local motion, I first show the robot can fly, I second show the robot can swim. I never expected the water surface tension so big. And you know, I, I remember the first time we were trying to put a robot into water, we just realized that we couldn't push it into the water. It was very difficult to push it into the water and the wing would bend and, and, and it seems like the robot wouldn't survive just the fact that we are trying to push it through the water. And that, that was something that was uh, you know, super surprising to us. And you know, the other thing, some, some other things is trying to be able to do electrolysis and combustion in water. Um, so that was also not a, uh, not a planned process. Uh, we try to use electrolysis to flow the water on the surface. Um, and uh, you know, trying to do combustion is something that's totally not intuitive. It, this is just purely based on experiments, and you know, you, you can, you know, we have a lot of experiments in which the robot explode into pieces and things. So, so yes, there is a lot of parts that we explore, um, but also uh, parts that we model. Interesting. Yeah. So since we're close to the end, I have three questions. First one from your lab. What could be maybe something still technological blocks you try to address, or maybe? Research question, do you think still the community maybe we don't address this question? What kind of challenges in your lab you're trying to, yeah, to answer through the coming years? I feel like a, a small part of me is really interested in, under, in understanding the underlying physics of insect locomotion and biomechanics. Mm -hmm. um, although, you know, it looks like the, our end product is building robots, but I really think that having a good understanding of the underlying biological and physical system can help us to build much better robots. And to me, the more I learn, the more robots I build, the more I realize we don't understand about the underlying physics and the, and the biological systems. Um, I, I, I think having worked in, you know, trying to study insect life for 10 years, there are still a lot of open questions that we cannot address at this point. Um, there are, you know, 
we, we, we couldn't even replicate how a bee flap its wings, you know, all the degrees of freedom that they generate. And we couldn't answer questions about, you know, how, for example, a small tilt of the wing short plane can increase or, or, or reduce before drag forces. And we hope that our work in robotics can help us to answer some of those questions. Uh, but again, let me say that uh, robotic functions sometimes are really limited because we have limited understanding of the things that we are trying to learn from. Mm, that's a very good point, yeah. So how do you see about the, the, the community, for example, if we speak about the publication and pressure to publish, and there's sometimes, yeah, some people say that it could be it could be not a problem, people say it's a problem that sometimes you're trying to answer this kind of quick question or maybe hard question. Mm -hmm. Do you see that the pressure to publish frequently affecting the way we try to be considered thoughtfully the question? I'm not making here a student generalization, but do you think it's affecting in the long run that you have to pressure to publish as much as you can? So, so, so frankly, I feel like, uh, yes, uh, especially junior, like, I think all researchers, especially junior faculties, has the pressure, has the pressure to, to publish a lot. Uh, personally, if you compare me with my peers, um, I think I'm more on the line of, uh, you know, I would rather publish less, but make sure each of my work comes than publishing a lot. And, 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 and frankly, yes, there is always competition. There's always pressure to publish, but I think the, if I look at, if I look in the literature, the things that stand out are always the good ones, right? It's not about publishing 10 mediocre papers. I think it's, it's about publishing one good paper. So, you know, from what I see, you know, successful people in my field, at least, um, they all have really, really good work that people can associate, uh, paper wisdom, rather than saying, uh, this researcher published 20 papers a year. So, so, in, in, so in some sense, yes, I definitely sense, uh, there is pressure to be productive, but I don't think it's, uh, preventing us from exploring the most interesting problem. And in fact, I feel the impact comes from you know, the most, you know, interesting paper. I, I think I can publish you know, 10 papers, but there's always one or two work that I really like the most. And I think that's what people associate that work with me. And I think that's true in general. So yes, people are you know, under pressure to publish, but I think uh, top researchers will still focus on doing the most interesting work, taking taking on risk and have high quality work on it. Thank you for sharing that, yeah. And do you think ego is important for you since there's a lot of competition and your ideas, and sometimes it takes a lot of time to convince your peers about different ideas? Do you think ego sometimes is important for you? So, 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 so I mean, some, some competition, so I, I, I agree in the sense that if there's too much competition, right, then people just try to do incremental work because it's hard to build up ideas, um, to have enough time to build up ideas and, and do things. But I think in general, my field of microbiotics and soft robotics are pretty healthy in, in the sense that um, there, there is space for you as long as you do good work. And I think in sometimes a little bit of competition is healthy, right? A, a com healthy competition means that everyone is doing good work. Everyone is pushing the field forward. So I'm not too concerned about you know, competition That's and, and ideas. Yeah. That's one of the answers. Mm -hmm. yeah.
And what could be the most important quality you have gained in your research? You're very fascinated about insects and understand it. Through your journey, what something is very important for you as a quality for researchers? You have to maintain one important quality. Oh, one important quality. Yeah. Um, to me, I, I think that the quality is curious. It's mm. being able to always being, being, being ready and being able to ask the important question. Um, yeah. I, I, I think being curious means that you're open-minded. You, I think you, you have one longer-term goal, but you are not limited just to one approach. You're always looking into different fields for interesting tools that you can apply to solve your problem. So being open-minded and curious, I think that are very important. Yeah. And lastly, what maybe the best advice was given to you and was a life exchanger, maybe professionally, personally, and affecting you the way your life and your research has worked. What could be that advice was given to you and maybe was a life changing? Oh, the life changing advice. Okay, that's a, that's a hard question. Um, well, I, I, I work with uh, so a, a professor at Howard, and you know, he's a very successful researcher. Um, um, and when I was a graduate student there, I definitely sensed um, sort of, uh, no, all graduate students have pressure, right? They, they have to work hard, they have to publish and everything. Um, I think what Rob told me was always looking, looking at a longer term goal. Don't think about the short term things. And, and, and have academic freedom. So those are the things that he gave me and those are the things that I'm trying to give my students right now. Meaning that give them enough freedom to explore the things that they are truly interested in and give them time to grow rather than saying, look, uh, here's a project. Let's try to finish it in, in three months. So being able to have academic freedom, I think is something that's super important for researchers. Wonderful, wonderful. I think he was also a podcast since two months ago, and and he, he have really the same yeah this kind of vision that just curiosity. So oh, okay. that's okay. wonderful. Great. 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 So hear that again. Mm -hmm. So that's were really inspiring, Kevin. And uh, but I'm curious to see if you have any final words you'd like to say for the community. Any final words you'd like to say? Sure. I, I so I think it's really a. a a very good experience to speak with you and to share all our work. Um, I I feel like our community is, uh, uh, to me, a, a, a very interesting one. It's still small and relatively new. And if I have a chance to talk to you know robotics in general, I, I just want to say that you know we are a very new field, um, but we are growing really fast. And we definitely like to. Uh, share our work with more people, talk to more people, uh, try to build more collaborations, and we also welcome you know, students who are interested to contact us. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, again, thank you once again for sharing your interesting and very inspiring work. I really appreciate it. Such yeah. an honor to have yeah. you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Thank you.